to welcome you to week two in a series of messages that we've called Unseen, and we're talking about spiritual warfare. And if you remember, we looked at Ephesians chapter six, which Cindy just read to you. One of the things that we said last week, and I want to reemphasize right off the get-go, so if you would grab your notes, because you're going to write it immediately here, one of the things, if you remember, it's a repeat point, let's review, is that walking the Christian life is a fight. That's your first fill-in. I'm going to give it to you right now. Walking the Christian life is a fight. And you remember what we said. We said, if you study the book of Ephesians, you'll see that the Apostle Paul in chapters 4, 5, and 6, after breaking down the Christian life and speaking to such practical things, he talks about marriage, he talks about relationships, he talks about parenting, he talks about drinking, he talks about all these very, very practical things. Then he gets to the very end in chapter six, and instead of saying, sincerely yours, Paul, you remember he says, finally. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, it says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world. Why? Because one of the things that we learned and if you've, last week, and if you've not listened to last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it or watch it online on YouTube. <laughs> But one of the things that if you remember we learned is that a real Christian is known as much by their inner conflict as they are their inner peace. Why? Because when you cross the line of faith, although you're walking with God and that gives you peace with God, you're also walking in direct opposition to the devil and his plans. And so there is a new warfare that begins to happen in your life that you didn't have before. You notice here it says, you're a soldier. Put on the armor. There's the soldier image. Then it says something interesting. It says, for we wrestle not. Which tells us something about the nature of the battle, doesn't it? Because he's talking about wrestling. And you wonder, Paul, are you mixing up your metaphors? Here's why. Soldiers don't typically wrestle, do they? Quartermasters don't wrestle. People in the artillery don't wrestle. No, 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 they don't. But Paul's trying to convey the nature of our battle because the ones who do wrestle are the ones that are up front in the very heat of the battle. Those few soldiers, they wrestle. It's up close and it's personal. What is Paul trying to convey to the Christian? He's saying, we are in a desperate battle. It is so bad, it is so intense, it is so intimate that you should be wrestling on the ground with your enemy. Why? Because it is a battle for your soul. He says, and it's a battle against things that are not human. It is against, let's look again, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, friends, as we talk about spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, I want to talk to you for a minute about the soul, your soul and my soul. Did you know that there are really two views of a human being? One view in society is that there is nothing to you but matter. All that matters is matter, is the material. In fact, some people would say there's nothing to you but chemicals. You're just physical You're a big bag of chemicals, and when you die, that's it. 
When your body falls apart, that's all there is to you. Now that's one view. There is another view. The other view is that yes, you have a body and that body is very much physical, but you not only have a body, you have a soul. You have a material part to you and you have an immaterial part to you. Yes, there is something that dies, but there is also something that moves on. Now here's what I find interesting. People who who believe that human beings don't have a soul, do you realize that they could never actually live consistently with that? You know why? Because if it's true that human beings don't actually have a soul, if it's true that you're just a bag of chemicals and I'm just a bag of chemicals, then what makes a human being any different from a tree or a cockroach? And I'd ask you, why should you treat a human being any different than any other bag of chemicals? From where do you get the ethics to do that? What makes you actually believe that you should treat a human person with respect and dignity more than you give any other configuration of chemicals on the planet? Here's why. Listen. We all know whether we admit it or not, we all know inherently And we have to live, even if we don't intellectually believe it, we have to live as if we have souls. And deep down, we all kind of think there is something in there, immaterial to us. Have you ever said to yourself, nobody knows what I'm going through? Why do you think that? If you were just a bag of chemicals, you wouldn't have that level of conscious thought. When you think about your body, you think I have to work on my body as if it's something separate from you. As you put on your makeup this morning, ladies, you were putting on your makeup on on your physical body, but that physical body wasn't your soul. You were looking at yourself in the mirror. You were aware that you were looking at yourself. See, there is a sense in which we all know there is something deeper than what we're seeing in the flesh. You have a soul. And the scripture says that your soul goes on forever in one condition or another. Let me say that again. Your soul will go on forever in one condition or another. Now, let me tell you, here's how it usually goes. Let's say today you try you let's say today you do something really selfish. Now, you do that today, I'm going to tell you tomorrow it's going to get easier for you to do something selfish. For example, do you remember how horrified you were with yourself when you first did that one thing? That sin. And now you do it fairly regularly, don't you? Why does that happen? Well, it's because of the soul. It's because those things make a mark on your soul and it gets easier and easier to do that thing. See, at first you grumble, but then after a little while, the grumble sort of sets in and now you're a grumbler. Grumbling just becomes not part of just what you do, but it's become part of who you are. Why? Because every decision you make makes a mark on your soul. This is why Peter turns to Ananias in the New Testament because Ananias doesn't give everything he said he was going to give to the church. This is about giving your proceeds, giving your land and your money to the church. And look what Peter says to him. He says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. Why? That's strong language. Because Peter knew that was making a mark on his soul. Every decision you make, you decide to be selfish. You decide to lie to your wife. 
You decide to lie to your husband. You were doing something to your soul. Listen to me. Over 10 years, over 20 years, over 30 years, friend, that is doing something. Come on. Everybody in this room, do you realize you're going to be living a 1,000 years from now? You're gonna live 2,000 years from now. You will still be alive as a personal being. The question is, what will you be like? I'm gonna tell you, one writer put it this way. He said, we're either going to be because of the marks we're putting on our soul. Some in this room are gonna be bright, radiant, immortal creatures who are pulsating and glowing with the glory and joy and the love and the nobility and the power and the wisdom of God. But there are others in this room, and by the way, none of us really know who's who yet. But some of us, a thousand years from now, we're gonna be like monsters. Why? Because of the marks you're putting on your soul. See, because I, I wanna say to you, these marks you're putting on your soul, they are moving you in one direction or another. So here's something you need to write down because you've gotta get this. What Paul is conveying here is, is that the battle is a desperate one because it's for your soul. It's desperate. Now this is fascinating because I didn't even know this existed, but I found a little autobiographical sketch of Oscar Wilde. Now if you think of Oscar Wilde, um, a lot of people think of his sexuality. This writing really isn't related to his sexuality. But he wrote this about himself years after he had given himself over to all the pleasures of this world. He says, he, 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 listen to what he says. He says, I deliberately went to the depths in search of new sensations. I grew careless of the lives of other people. I took pleasure where it pleased me and I passed on. I forgot every little action of the common day, makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into the long spells of senseless and sensual ease. He says, I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I didn't even know it because I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. Now, what is he talking about? He says, I didn't realize. Now, guys, you gotta understand, when he says, I didn't realize, that's the key right there. He says, I forgot. Every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. Then he goes on and he says that therefore, what one has done in the secret chamber, one day is gonna be cried aloud from the housetop. Why? Because it's who you're becoming. And wild, he's only thinking of the temporary. He's only thinking of the physical. Do you know what secularism means? Secularum, Latin, it, comes, it means now. All I care about is now, what I want now. And I'm saying there is a battle for your soul every single day that Paul calls wrestling, and he says your soul is being claimed by God and it's being counterclaimed by supernatural evil. And so write this down. The stakes are incredibly high is exactly what Paul is saying. And they're so high because he wants to point out, you're not just wrestling with flesh and blood, do you see? You can no longer just think, well, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to make a few decisions and it's going to be a boring day. No, you can't look at your life that way. Why? Because Christianity is a fight. Write this down. It's for your very soul. Again, 
Have we beat that enough? Write that down. It's for your very soul. Now, number two, I want you to write this down. One of the things I love about Christianity is that Christianity sees this fight that we're in on lots of different levels. Would you just write that down? Christianity sees the fight on many, many levels. See, Christianity isn't simplistic. It's multidimensional. It sees our troubles as multidimensional. In fact, let's just get down for a minute and talk about the devil finally. I, last week I talked about the devil a little bit. I skirted around it. But I did say, if you remember, there are going to be people here who are going to say, Pastor, I cannot believe that you really believe in the devil. You seem like a sensible person. How simplistic. And I guess all I just want to say to you in this moment is that the whole purpose of Paul's passage is to say, listen to me, friend, unless you believe in and understand the strategies and methods of Satan, you're the one who's being simplistic. He says, because as long as you look at your problems only as problems of this world, strictly in terms of flesh and blood, you are going to inevitably and continually be defeated. It's like the general, you know, the general out there that thinks that he's fighting, you know, against two divisions and there's really four divisions. What's gonna happen to that general? He's gonna be defeated. Stop being so simplistic. Let me give an example. Everybody in this world, in our culture in America today, fights with flesh and blood. Liberals pose the question, what are we gonna do about our city? And what will a liberal say? A liberal will say, well, here's what we have to do in Fresno. We have to get better programs. We need more education. We need to give people better jobs. It'll stop all the strife. It'll stop all the violence. The conservatives will say, no, 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 that's not what it is. What you need to do is jumpstart the economy. Maybe we need to have some more policemen. You know, I don't know. Conservatives are going to come at it another way. But here's what's fascinating to me about all the different arguments, no matter what side you're on. All the arguments reduce the problem to flesh and blood. That's the problem. And we wrestle with flesh and blood. It's all we wrestle with. We're not wrestling with the devil anymore, we're wrestling with one another. But Christianity doesn't look at it that way. It says, no, 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 don't you see problems are much more complex than this? I read a sermon by a man by the name of Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan minister in England. We're talking 1680. And he wrote a sermon, 1680, it was called The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow by Faith. Now, melancholy means depression. Anybody ever deal with depression? How do you cure depression? So first he says this, and I love this, because this is 1680, and look at what he says. He says, one of the problems in your life could be a conscience problem. It could be that you feel guilty. If there's sin involved, sin can make you depressed. Guilt can make you depressed. And he goes on to say, the only way to deal with that part of your conscience and depression is... Realize the difference between true guilt and false guilt. Go to the Bible and just see, are you truly violating God's will? If you are, confess it. If you're not, reject it. Reject the emotion. Or are you just feeling guilty because your mother told you never to do that and you really don't need to feel guilty about that? He says, you're never gonna know the difference between true guilt and false guilt until you go to God's word and get revelation. 
On the other hand, now listen, this is Richard Baxter, 1680. He says, on the other hand, there's another cause. It could be that the person has physical problems. He says, there are physical distempers that can overthrow the heart and overthrow the emotion. Now, we know better than he did. There are all sorts of things that can go wrong with your brain. We know that today with your brain chemistry, the chemistry in your body that can create depression, that needs medication, that needs to get into some sort of balance. Third, Baxter goes on and he says, you know, it could be that or it could be psychological problems. He says you could have suffered a shock or grief. You could lose a loved one. The way he puts it, and I quote, he says, you could have such a terrible shock of the mind that it sort of just shuts down because you can only take in so much at any one time. Anybody ever feel that? And then he goes on to say, and then there is the demonic approach. He says, in some cases, I have spoken to people who finding a stream of blasphemous thoughts in their minds, they just can't seem to stop. Violent thoughts from coming through, negative thoughts, they turn around, they say to themselves, I must be an awful person to think that. He looks at them sometimes and he says, I don't see a spiritual, psychological, or physical cause. What you're experiencing is spiritual warfare. What you need to do is realize that this is from the evil one, You need to realize it's not coming out of your own heart. You need to realize that God has forgiven you. You don't need to be afraid that God is going to cast you off. You need to resist those thoughts, and the devil will eventually go away. Isn't this great counseling in 1680 by a Puritan pastor? What's so interesting about Baxter is he says, look, if it's depression that's caused you to sin, repent. If it's physical problems, go have a balanced diet. If you're in shock... And, and, and you're going through grief, talk to someone. You get the point. In fact, you know what he says? He says in most cases, it's usually not just one, it's usually one, two, three, or even four of them all operating at the same time. Come on. Have you ever asked yourself, you ever looked in the mirror and said, why am I so messed up? <laughs> I'm telling you, there are lots of reasons. And that's really what Paul is saying when he says it's not just flesh and blood. Now listen, I know you're going to meet very, very spiritual people, legalistic people who are just going to say, oh, you just need to repent. Or you're going to read superstitious books by great preachers that are going to say it's always demons, so you just got to cast out the demons. All I'm saying is that's not the way the Bible goes. Christianity is so much more nuanced than that. It's so much more multidimensional. There is evil within me. There is evil beside me. There is evil above me. I could be going through what I'm going through because I'm dishonest with myself. I could be going through what I'm going through because I'm clinging to things that I shouldn't be clinging to. Anybody relate? And until you understand that, you're gonna be defeated. That's what God says. Now, let me give you this third point. You ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. Ready. All right, here we go. Number three. Number three. The devil is mighty, yet he's vulnerable. The devil is mighty, the scripture tells us, yet vulnerable. Now remember this. You have to understand, the devil on the one hand is mighty. Do you understand? He says that you and I are fighting against powers and principalities. Now let me make something clear to you. Despite what you think, the Bible does not demonstrate an idea that it is God versus the devil. 
We tend to get that in our minds as though it was God versus the devil. No, 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 it is not God versus the devil. To say it's God versus the devil is saying like it's Shane versus a little black ant. It's like saying an aircraft carrier against a raft. It's ridiculous. God doesn't have to battle Satan. You and I have to battle Satan. And you need to understand that. We are fighting against principalities and powers. And by the way, all through the scripture, God gives us tremendous insight into those spiritual realities. Let me just give you one example. There's this time in the Old Testament where Daniel is fasting and praying, and he's been fasting and praying for God to give him answers for three weeks. He's calling on God for answers. He's not eating a thing. He's in desperate prayer for help. Finally, an angelic being appears And the scripture says in verse six, his body was like beryl, his face was like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. So he's getting quite the picture of this being, this person. And then you notice he gets a glimpse into spiritual warfare that's going on in the heavenlies as he prays, because look what it says. Don't be afraid, Daniel, this angel said to him. For from the first day that you purposed to understand and humble yourself before God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. But then he gives us a glimpse into the spiritual warfare that's happening behind the scenes. He says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, now let me stop right there for just a minute. He's not talking about a physical being. He's talking about what the scripture calls a principality. What's a principality? A palady is a geographical location. A prince is a ruler. What he's saying is it seems to indicate that there are demons that are over geographical areas on the map. And they are doing battle. And he says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days, but then Michael the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the king of Persia. Isn't that amazing? I always wonder. He prayed and fasted for 21 days, and then he's like, God, where you been? Oh, man, your prayers were heard. I came, but I've been resisted. I've been doing bad. I always wonder, what would have happened if he would have given up at day 17? I mean, I wonder that. What would have happened if he just said, oh, forget it, God's not gonna answer. I've prayed three times, God hasn't answered. Don't believe anymore. No. See, there's spiritual warfare that goes on. By the way, you see these insights all through the scripture because there really are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. By the way, there's also only two humanities. Do you realize we talk about races? There's only two races of humanity. There's the race of light, the kingdom of God, and there's the race of darkness. That's pretty much how the scripture defines it. Do you know the place, for example, where we see Jesus arguing with the Pharisees? And look at what he says, John 8. He says, you belong to your father, the who? The devil. He says to these religious leaders, you actually belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. You remember that? The Pharisees got really upset. They said, oh, no, we're not. We're on the other side. We're children of Abraham. He says, no, 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 you belong to the father. Your your father, the devil. You want to carry out his desires. I don't care who you think you are. 
This is who you really are. What is Jesus saying here? What is Paul saying? What does the scripture say over and over again? Friend, listen to me. It says that there is darkness and there is light. There is a race of human beings that are under the influence of supernatural evil. And there is a race of human beings that are under the influence of supernatural good. Now, if you want to know about this, I want you to think. Think about who you are. What are you under the influence of? Really, truly. The Bible says when the devil fell, he rebelled against God. Here's what he said. If you, by the way, write this down. I don't have it in your notes, but you can write this down. If you want to get a full description of Satan, how it happened, and even a glimpse into how he looks, go to um, Isaiah chapter 14 and go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Those two chapters in the Old Testament give you a sneak peek backward into what happened. It's a fascinating story. But in Isaiah 14, it says, what did Satan say? Satan said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. And so then Jesus says later, hey, I remember when that happened. I quoted this last week. Remember, he says in Luke, he says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw that. By the way, this is probably one of the best evidences that you have for Satan. Jesus says he exists. Jesus says, I've seen him. I saw him. He says, Jesus says, listen guys, Satan wanted to go up, so he fell down. Satan wanted to exalt himself, and therefore he what? Descended. Now, you look at Jesus though. Look at Jesus. Jesus went down, and therefore he was raised up. The Bible says Jesus humbled himself, therefore he was what? Think about those two differences. To which race do you belong? Now understand, you, you've got to understand, those are two different strains. Those are two different spiritual DNA matrices. Those are two different spiritual chromosomes that are going on in your life. One kingdom or the other is working on every single human being. And I'm gonna say this, if you think that you're just gonna live for yourself, guess who you're actually falling under? If you think I'm the only one who can decide what's right for me, if you think I'm the only one who can decide what to live for, it's my desires, it's my decision, it's my body, friend, who do you think your father is? The more you decide to live for yourself, the more you become like your father because you're giving in to that spiritual DNA. Haven't you noticed? I, I mean, haven't you noticed that all the old fairy tales go like this? Why do you think that is? I, I don't even remember what the name of it was, but my kids were watching a movie years ago. It was a fairy tale, and there was this witch that comes and gives this child several wishes, and she knows the more she uses those wishes for selfish purposes, the more she falls under the power of the witch. And you know what? That's the story, basically. The more you use the power, the more you become like her, the more you fall under her control. Do you guys remember Lord of the Rings? Come on, who remembers Lord of the Rings? What's that about? The whole idea is there's this great ring of power created by the Dark Lord, and if any one of the heroes decides to use that ring of power, slowly they become like the Dark Lord, and they fall under the power of the Dark Lord. Come on, you know the story. We keep repeating it over and over again. There's nothing creative anymore. Look at Star Wars. The emperor give in to the hate, Luke. 
reach out with your anger. You know, the more you come under my control. Why do you think that is so often the theme of all the old stories? Friend, because it is the story. Because it's in our hearts. It is the story. Did you hear what Oscar Wilde said? He said, the more I became living for my own pleasure, it changed me until one day I realized. You remember what he said? He said, I was no longer myself. Two DNAs working on the heart of your soul that makes you look one way or another. Now, the good news is, if you turn to Jesus, here's what he says. Watch this, it's powerful. Look at this scripture. If you turn to Jesus, he says, I will take away your stubborn heart, and I will give you a new heart, and I will give you the DNA to desire to be faithful. If you just yield to me and come to me, I will work that. And now, I'm not saying you'll be perfect. You may still find yourself a selfish person, but you know what? There's gonna be a part of you that's gonna be saying, I gotta give up my rights. I gotta give up my rights. I've got to submit. I've gotta give my will to him, and you're gonna work for it. You're gonna fight. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. And do you know what? It works. How many of you have come to know it really does work? When we really do die to ourselves, we actually find ourselves. It is amazing how it works. When you really lose your life, you'll find your life. Some of you need to lose your life today. You need to say, God, I give you my life. I let it go. I surrender. Or you could be like Oscar Wilde. The more I live for myself, the less I had myself. But I'm telling you, friend, it's gonna be one or the other. The devil is a mighty, angelic being. He is mighty. Listen, he was here long before you were. The devil is like a divine Jack the Ripper. So don't think, oh, I'm gonna go beat the devil. A little humility, please, okay? You are no match for the devil on your own. And if you think you can live a selfish, independent life without falling under his principality... It's not gonna be long before you're just his pawn. But he's also vulnerable. Why? Write this down. Because the scripture teaches that the devil is on a chain. The devil is on a chain. In other words, his power has been broken. It's limited. Anybody here ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? tell you very quickly that I read this amazing story and the guy was called Pilgrim. He changed his name to Christian because he came to know Jesus. And he was told, how do I get to the celestial city? And he said, here's what you have to do. You have to walk down the center of this road to get there. And he said, oh, no, I can't because there were lions lined up on both sides. And he said, if I run down the middle, they're going to charge me from both sides. He said, no, they won't. As long as you're obedient not to turn right or left, you'll be okay. And so he starts walking toward the celestial city. Sure enough, those lions charge and go after him. But he found that they were about a foot away from him on a chain. They could roar They could manipulate. They could try and get him to turn to the left or the right. But as long as he was obedient and just kept walking on that line, he couldn't be touched. Friends, that's what spiritual warfare is like. God says, I'll protect you and I'll guard you if you will just trust me. And write this last point down. We're gonna pray. Scripture says, you have the power then to stand in triumph as you're obedient to him. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for each person here. Thank you, God, for your work in our life. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you want us to stand and to triumph. You don't want us to give in to patterns and things that are gonna cause us to, to go the other direction. You want us to be like you. Lord, help us to be like you. Thank you for your shed blood on the cross that meets us where we are, that, that cleanses us from our sins so that we could be made new, so that we could get a new heart. That's the sign of the new covenant, that we'd get a new heart and a new disposition. Thank you for that, God. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen.